This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The patient's finger tapped against the side of her bed, the same bed where she had laid for decades. Outside of this perpetual tick, her limbs ached. Despite the desperate effort inside her head, her finger was the only thing she could will to move. Aside from that ceaseless tapping, she was paralyzed. Deep inside, she willed herself to speak, but the words could not be formed. The early morning nurse crossed the room doing her rounds. She knew the patient had been started on an experimental new treatment a few days ago, but after decades, what hope could there be? This patient was just one of many victims of the encephalitis lethargica epidemic from the early 1920s. By 1969, she was nothing but a lost cause. But then... The tapping stopped. The nurse turned around and locked eyes with a patient who hadn't made eye contact with anyone since FDR was in office. The nurse rushed from the room to collect the doctors, the other nurses, anyone. It was a miracle. The treatment had worked. The patient was waking up. All alone in her room, with the weight finally lifted, the hopeless patient began to whistle. She was free. She was finally free. But was this just another peak, as her youthful health had been? Was another valley right around the bend? Was the darkness going to come back and claim her once again? When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game, with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Encephalitis Lethargica, an epidemic that swept across the world in the wake of World War I, plunging countless people into a seemingly incurable sleeping sickness. Last week, we saw how many diagnoses emerged from the crisis, but no distinct cure was ever found. This week, we'll follow the survivors decades later still trapped by this medical mystery and the arrival of a drug called L-DOPA that promised to finally end their suffering. When the last morgue doors and casket lids shut on the Encephalitis Lethargica epidemic, sometime between 1926 and 1929, estimates ranged that between 50,000 and a few million lives were lost. In his 1973 book, Awakenings, Dr. Oliver Sacks proposed that at least 5 million lives were affected by the disease, with about a third of those dying in the acute stages of the sleeping sickness. The true number remains a mystery. A proliferation of variant diagnoses made it difficult to determine which patients suffered from primary EL and which may have been misdiagnosed. With the help of Joel Volinsky's book on the epidemic and aftermath, along with Konstantin von Economo's original research, a codified definition of what we can consider true EL has now emerged. During the acute phase, there is an encephalitic swelling of the brain. Victims then suffer from ocular and facial nerve crises, resulting in uncontrolled eye movement and the paralysis of their face into a mask-like appearance. Similarly, the patient may enter periods of respiratory crisis where breathing itself seems blocked or accelerated into hyperventilation. There are alterations in the sleep cycle with a frequent appearance of long-lasting stupor, sometimes alternating with periods of delirium. But within this stupor, Doctors like Von Economo could often call the patient back to consciousness to answer simple questions. Von Economo therefore deemed this state pseudosomnolence, somewhere between real sleep and a hallucinogenic sleep paralysis. Finally, in what we will deem primary EL, symptoms that resembled Parkinsonian tics, tremors, and movement could arise, and often plague the patient for years afterward as the disease transitioned to its chronic stage. Despite the research of doctors all over the world, including the well-funded Matheson Commission, no cure or vaccine was ever developed. As the epidemic wound down suddenly in 1927, most of the world simply hoped they had seen the end of EL. As for the chronic sufferers, it was believed their symptoms would either die out, as they sometimes seem to, or the patients themselves would die. In Awakenings, Sachs wrote, Patients who suffered but survived an extremely severe primary EL attack often failed to recover their original aliveness. They would be conscious and aware, yet not fully awake. 
They would sit motionless and speechless all day. They registered what went on about them with active attention and profound indifference. Von Economo compared them to extinct volcanoes. As we saw last week, patients continued to suffer. For example, Francis D., a secretary who survived the epidemic period of EL, had side effects which emerged and worsened over the next 40 years. For instance, she had regular ocular nerve seizures. They came so often she could set her clock to them. By the 1960s, she was admitted to the Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx, and muscular problems spread through the rest of her body. Her posture was bent, her voice dropped to a whisper, and she fell fully into a new disorder, post-encephalitic Parkinson's disease. This was the fate of many survivors of the EL epidemic, and understanding the history of Parkinson's disease and its symptoms are the key to unlocking the rest of this mystery. In 1817, Dr. James Parkinson made a giant leap forward for neurology as a whole. Although a particular set of symptoms and signs had been noted in medical literature for decades, Parkinson was the first to identify it as a singular neurological disorder in his Essay on the Shaking Palsy. This disease starts when a victim detected tremors in one of their extremities. Soon, movement might become inhibited throughout the body. Speech slurs and things typically degenerate from there. Over a century later, similar symptoms were observed in the survivors of chronic encephalitis lethargica. This new version of Dr. Parkinson's disease was deemed post-encephalitic Parkinson's, or PEP. There were over 80 victims of PEP at Beth Abraham Hospital when the young and ambitious neurologist Oliver Sachs first arrived in 1966. The hospital was originally opened in the wake of World War I for veterans and the lingering victims of EL. Since then, Beth Abraham had become more crowded with over a thousand beds. The PEP sufferers, including Francis D., were spread throughout the campus, disconnected, and seen as completely incurable. Not all 80 of the PEP patients had developed the disease following EL. Some developed it spontaneously or after suffering from another form of encephalitis. But for many, EL was the primary cause. Following in the footsteps of Parkinson, Dr. Sachs wanted to bring PEP back into the light of active research. As he dove deeper into the histories of these patients, he discovered what he called positive and negative characteristics of Parkinson's in the EL survivors. The positive or active components included hurried and compulsive movement as well as inhibited movement. Sachs found these components created a push-pull effect as if they were struggling against some interior will. It commanded their body to make unnatural movements or contort into uncomfortable shapes. The negative or regressive characteristics were the results of this ongoing interior warfare. A psychological exhaustion drained them to the point of what Sachs called an absolute absence of the will. This led to a state very familiar to those who made it through primary EL. The victims shut up inside themselves as a dullness overtook their everyday lives. 
Cut off from any form of emotional or physical release, these patients continuously sank deeper and deeper into PEP. It seemed like the patients would be lost forever. Other than Dr. Sachs, no one was researching EL any longer. But in the late 1960s, research in Parkinson's disease turned a corner with the arrival of a new drug. It seemed impossible, but the drug was heralded as a miracle that could finally free those with Parkinson's from their mental prisons. Dr. Sachs wondered if it could do the same for his patients with chronic EL. When we return, we'll see how Sachs designed a medical trial to finally awaken his patients from their ongoing nightmare. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. By the 1960s, the epidemic of encephalitis lethargica was long gone, but its effects lingered in the form of post-encephalitic Parkinson's, or PEP. This was a version of Parkinson's that trapped victims within themselves. They were locked away in a body rigid with tension and shaken by tremors. Over 80 such patients were spread across the sprawling Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx, New York. Dr. Oliver Sachs, an ambitious and soon-to-be legendary neurologist, had watched these patients degenerate further since his arrival in 1966. He decided it was time for a change. But his first step wasn't medicinal at all. It was psychological. Along with a loyal support staff of nurses, speech therapists, movement specialists, and others, Sachs brought together all Parkinson's and PEP patients into one ward. He hoped to create a more communal atmosphere. What struck him most about all of these people, over half of whom were withdrawn into their own private worlds, was the sense of despair. He couldn't shake the feeling that the atmosphere of the hospital itself might be a detriment to any chance of recovery. However, it would still take more than a change of scenery to affect their lives significantly. It would take something called L-DOPA. Since the late 1910s, scientists and doctors had been seeking an exact cause for EL, and countless post-mortem brain examinations were made to that effect. Taking a close look at the brain tissue of an EL patient in 1919, Konstantin von Economo observed an intense amount of damage in the midbrain region. He also noted that such damage was most common in patients whose EL had exhibited severe Parkinsonian symptoms. It seemed possible that specific brain damage to some unseen system might be the cause of Parkinson's. This was one of the first major new theories since Dr. Parkinson himself had advanced the medical understanding of the disease. In 1960, Austrian biochemist Ole Ornikiewicz made the claim that Parkinsonian brains were lacking in one specific area, dopamine, dopamine. 
the chemical neurotransmitter that's responsible for neurological responses in emotion, learning, addiction, and even some motor functions. Ornikiewicz believed that a disrupted dopamine system could be the cause of severe Parkinsonian disruptions. While dopamine itself couldn't be directly given to patients as a medication, the natural precursor of dopamine, L-DOPA, could be. This would stimulate the development of dopamine throughout the brain. Dr. George Katsias oversaw the most prominent trial of L-DOPA in 1965 when he administered L-DOPA in pill form to over 28 Parkinsonian patients. When he published his results in 1967, over 20 had seen a huge reduction in their symptoms. Over the next few years, news of the spectacular drug spread throughout the world. The media and scientific community deemed it a miracle drug. The end of Parkinson's might have been in sight. But as Oliver Sacks read over the results in his Beth Abraham office, he couldn't quite believe it. He had always been skeptical of miracle drug claims, as it didn't sit well with him philosophically. He didn't think this disease was simple enough to take down with one well-placed bullet. It had to be more comprehensive than that, and more personal. In Awakenings, he wrote about why L-DOPA and miracle drugs like it held such appeal. We may expect to find such ideas most intense in those who are enduring extremities of suffering, sickness, and anguish, in those who are consumed by the sense of what they have lost, and by the urgency of recouping it before it's too late. However, Sachs only had to look around his newly arranged ward to see how much desperation there was in his patients. We've already met Frances D., but she was just one of 80 at Beth Abraham. Not all cases of PEP could be traced back to the EL epidemic, but at least seven of Sachs's PEP victims had suffered from primary EL. One such patient, Robert O., was born in Russia in 1905. His parents brought him to the United States when he was still a child, and he prospered, graduating from high school by age 15. Only two years later, before he could start a full-fledged career, Robert fell victim to primary EL in 1922. His stupor lasted over six months. Although he recovered, chronic symptoms haunted him until 1930. Robert would fall in and out of sleep all day, but would be completely wired at night. His mood swung violently across the spectrum. His parents and friends noted that every now and again, for 15 minutes or so, Robert's eyes would glaze over and he would just stare into space. It was as if he had vanished from his own life. In 1926, he developed Parkinsonian tremors. He tried his best to keep up his employment as a salesman until 1936 and then managed to survive on disability until 1956. By this time, Robert experienced intensive facial masking, muscular rigidity, and an uncontrollable urge to move quickly and recklessly. By the time he met Dr. Sachs in 1966, Robert's back was fully hunched, just like Francis's. Then there was Margaret A., a daughter of poor Irish immigrants who developed primary EL back in 1925 while living in New York. 
Sachs wrote of how she slept continuously for 10 weeks, although she could be roused to be fed, and was exceedingly lethargic, fearful, and depressed for a year after this. By 1928, Margaret was prevented from working due to hand tremors, a slow walking speed, increased drowsiness, emotional instability, and ocular nerve crises that could last up to 10 hours. This trance state was very similar to Robert's condition during his trance-like reveries. Even more radical than Frances, Margaret, or Robert was Miriam H. After being orphaned at six months of age, Miriam was raised and abused throughout her childhood at a New York orphanage. At age 11 in 1925, Miriam was pushed off a bridge, breaking her legs, pelvis, and back. A year later, when she was 12, Miriam contracted primary EL. What followed was six months of sleeping stupor and then two more years of chronic lethargy and horrid nightmares. Miriam's PEP symptoms also arrived much faster than Sachs' other patients. At 16, the entire left side of her body froze up and her speech accelerated, making proper communication much more difficult. By 1932, at the age of 18, Miriam was already in Beth Abraham, where her condition worsened. Like Margaret, Miriam's ocular crises would often last up to 10 hours, and she could only stare at the ceiling and wait for them to end. Over her 37 years cooped up inside Beth Abraham, Miriam's weight drastically increased. She often suffered from bed sores and acne as she spent more time in bed and also developed diabetes due to a poor diet. This exacerbated Miriam's violent temper, and it became hard for anyone, be it other patients or support staff, to truly get close to her. Sachs saw Miriam as one of the most isolated and hopeless of all his patients. But as Sachs wrote up case studies for each of his PEP patients, it became harder and harder for him to deny the possibilities L-DOPA might hold for them. By March 1969, the drug was cheap enough even for the underfunded Beth Abraham Hospital to afford. Sachs gave the order. He designed a double-blind study in which some suffering from PEP and Parkinson's would receive L-DOPA, while others would receive a placebo. The study would last 90 days, and then Sachs would see with his own eyes what L-DOPA was capable of. Francis, Robert, Margaret, and Miriam would be among the patients who received the real drug. Robert and Margaret were first up, and Sachs administered their first four-gram dose in early May 1969. Francis and Miriam started it in June at 0.5 grams and 2 grams daily, respectively. Before L-DOPA, Margaret went through a similar cycle each evening. Her neck would grow more rigid, to the point where she wouldn't be able to even look up anymore, and her mood would drop pretty low. She would always be asleep or in a stupor before 6 p.m. But after two days of taking L-DOPA, Margaret's eyes remained open long past 6 o'clock. Sachs and his staff were amazed to see how alert she seemed. Her neck rigidity had also noticeably lessened. A similar increase in overall attention and interest was observed in Francis D. 
where before she felt a nervous energy with no outlet, after a week on 0.5 grams of L-DOPA, she had regained enough control over her hands to spend each day crocheting and writing in her journal. The overweight and disinterested Miriam's response surprised Sachs most of all. After only three days on two grams daily of L-DOPA, Miriam had emerged from her shell. She began speaking with staff regularly and taking an interest in her general appearance. Miriam told Sachs that she wanted to deal with the acne that had built up during her years of near hibernation and that she wanted to wear a dress each day instead of her hospital gown, like Frances. She put her newfound energy to use, keeping a diary. By July 9th, Miriam had regained enough finger dexterity to feed herself for the first time in decades. As August rolled around, she told Sachs, It has been the best month I have had in years. She even got to work with physiotherapists, finally relearning how to walk. Miriam had seemingly become an entirely new person in a little over a month. And this incredible response wasn't just contained to these few patients. Almost everyone with Parkinson's or PEP who received L-DOPA displayed what Sachs came to call an awakening. There was Magda, who hadn't been able to speak more than a few words in monotone since 1923. Suddenly, she was speaking all the time, and her original Viennese accent returned too. Rose, a jet-setter from the Roaring Twenties, reawoke to a country 40 years past what she remembered. Then there was Leonard, who suffered from traditional Parkinson's. For years, this highly intelligent man had only been able to communicate by tapping out his thoughts on a board translated by a speech therapist. Sachs was especially drawn to the erudite Leonard and marveled at the patient's description of the Parkinsonian condition. Leonard utilized the words of the poet T.S. Eliot, "'Descend lower into the world of perpetual solitude, world not world, internal darkness, deprivation and destitution of all, desiccation of the world of sense, inoperancy of the world of spirit.'" For a wonderful time after Leonard's usage of L-DOPA, he could put the board down and openly converse with Dr. Sachs, sharing his decades of experience without the blockade of Parkinson's in the way. Needless to say, Sachs and his Beth Abraham team became full-hearted believers in the power of L-DOPA during these early weeks of the trial. Sachs discarded the notion of his 90-day limited double-blind study and expanded L-DOPA treatment to any and all who desired it, or those he thought would especially be affected. And yet, perhaps Sachs had just left his guard down. Perhaps he had become overexcited. While many around the ward were indeed reawakening to the world, some were still left behind, like Robert O., one of the earliest L-DOPA recipients. Robert agreed to the trial in the first place, mainly to help with his intense back pain. The contortions forced upon his body by PEP were simply too much to bear. If there was a chance to heal, he wanted to take it. However, two weeks after his initial four-gram dose in early May, Robert's speech sped up to an unmanageable degree. 
Sachs noticed a similar increase in pace in Robert's walking, almost as if something were chasing him. All of this made Robert's back pain even worse. Sachs increased the dosage, hoping to provoke an overpowering effect in his patient, but Robert only experienced more uncontrolled movements. By the end of the month, he could no longer control his tongue, and his ability to speak clearly vanished. He also experienced ocular crises, forcing his eyes to drift upward and close, making him functionally blind. Similar nerve problems occurred during the epidemic period in those suffering from primary EL and in other PEP patients in Sachs Ward, but they had never been an issue for Robert. By June 10th, Sachs pulled Robert off of L-DOPA and his patient returned to his former bottled-up state. Robert was the first off the miracle drug, but he wouldn't be the last. When we return, the ugly side of L-DOPA rears its head, and Sachs is forced to redefine his understanding of the drug and the disease. And now, back to the story. In 1969, Beth Abraham Hospital had become a place of miracles thanks to the drug L-DOPA. Patients who had been paralyzed and hobbled by Parkinson's and post-encephalitic Parkinson's were able to move, speak, and feel for the first time in decades. Indeed, in some cases, for the first time since the primary EL epidemic in the 1920s. But as the end of the year approached, Dr. Sachs himself had to awaken from the newfound dream of L-DOPA. Despite early signs of hope, the drug had begun to backfire for some of his patients. Robert O. was an early casualty, as L-DOPA only made his PEP symptoms more unmanageable. Sachs hoped it would be an isolated case, But then, Margaret, who formerly suffered from chronic sleepiness, turned a corner and became a complete insomniac. Sachs observed the emergence of restless tics and motions in Margaret's legs and mouth. He reduced her dosage, trying to prevent this from spiraling out of control. But instead, Margaret's thirst and hunger became insatiable and compulsive. By mid-June, the drowsiness returned intermittently, meaning Margaret was always either tired or hyperactive. Her tics and movement problems worsened to the point where she could no longer walk in anything but a straight line. She described her own mental state to Sachs as thus, I feel so tingly, like my blood is champagne. Margaret also experienced long periods of mania where she couldn't sit still. She would dance all through the ward. She then had her first ocular crisis in over a year. Sachs was alarmed and dropped her dosage even lower. But even then, his patient found herself drawn back into the familiar push and pull of PEP, cycling through the compulsion to rush around and the mental standstill that led to freezing in place for hours at a time. Similar side effects appeared in Miriam's behavior. Her previous volcanic temper returned in full force and new tics manifested, including a particularly painful chewing compulsion that tore up her gums. 
All of this made Sachs wonder if L-DOPA was causing these new problems or if it was simply losing effectiveness as a potential cure. Miriam's condition worsened as respiratory problems also arose, but they were nothing like the issues that plagued Francis D., formerly a star patient, through July 1969. She was unable to control her breathing for up to three hours at a time, making these truly life-threatening situations. Sachs wanted to take her off the drug, but Francis held it off. She was still too appreciative of the physical and mental clarity the drug had allowed her so far. She put up with the three respiratory attacks that now arrived daily, morning, noon, and night. Sachs noticed an intriguing link between Francis's mind and body in this situation. Once, when a nurse checked in on Francis one afternoon to see if she had a crisis that day, Francis's attack began immediately upon thinking about it happening. And although Francis had one inexplicable symptom-free day on July 28th, it was immediately followed by three straight days of intense respiratory crisis that finally concluded when Francis fell asleep for another full day. When she opened her eyes, Sachs could see the battle of will inside of her had been lost all over again. The PEP was back in force, despite the low L-DOPA dosage. She explained her feelings to Sachs as if, quote, I'd done a vertical takeoff. I had gone higher and higher on L-DOPA to an impossible height, and then, with the boost taken away, I crashed. I shot way in the other direction until I was buried a million miles deep in the ground. Despite the early promise of L-DOPA, the volcanoes were going back to sleep. In 1970, Sachs reversed his opinion on L-DOPA and wrote about the negative reactions in his patients in the Journal of the American Medical Association. This sparked a controversy, as many pushed back against him. They argued that his trial wasn't well-constructed and couldn't speak for L-DOPA's utility for any and every patient. They weren't exactly wrong, either, as Sachs had thrown away the traditional double-blind structure. But these critics also didn't want to give up on the dream of L-DOPA. Sachs remained staunch in his opinion that L-DOPA always had side effects. And as the decade proceeded, he was proven correct. He remained on at Beth Abraham and continued to use L-DOPA on his patients, but he had little hope that this would ever result in any permanent cures. Nor did Sachs believe that there was a universal dosage of L-DOPA that could eliminate all side effects. Even his patients that remained on the drug found their dosage fluctuating. Sachs thought that their neurological disease was learning how to respond to the drug, so this dance of dosage might continue forever. As he developed the conclusion to his book, Awakenings, Sachs tied together his whole experience at Beth Abraham by coming back to his ethos when he arrived. Environment and psychological state seemed to be just as important to those suffering from PEP as any miracle drug. Although almost every one of his patients experienced some sort of awakening on L-DOPA, there were always complications, especially for the PEP patients. 
Many continued onward with L-DOPA treatment, but no one was ever cured. In the aftermath, Sachs wrote, Almost all of my patients who have found themselves in such situations use the image of a tightrope to express how they feel. In other words, because these people had been sick for so long, it was almost as if their inner conditions weren't capable of maintaining health at all. A slight change in the breeze and tribulation overtook their lives once more. For Robert O., it signaled a quick deterioration as his muscles atrophied and his weight dropped. Despite their efforts, hospital staff were unable to keep him healthy. Sachs believed that Robert had perceived Eldopa's failure and decided not to hang on to hope any longer. He died in 1972. In contrast, Francis D. was put back on Eldopa in the summer of 1972 on a very low dose. Although she never had the same highs of her original month on the drug, she didn't suffer from the worst crises either. She walked on Sachs's tightrope for the rest of her life, until she died from another variant of influenza in 1976, a cruel twist of fate. However, this was not a fully hopeless outcome. There were non-medical treatments that, coupled with L-DOPA, could help ease these people's suffering. For some, that took the form of music. When played, some PEP patients could find themselves symptom-free until the song's conclusion lost in the flow of the piece. Others, as we have seen, found peace in writing or other craft work like knitting or gardening. Sachs also stressed that patients, doctors, and staff could assist in this realm by making their ward more like a home and less like a hospital. They could encourage social interaction and treat patients like people instead of problems. These tactics succeeded for Margaret, who remained on L-DOPA until her death in 1976. She was happiest out in the Beth Abraham Garden, listening and singing along to music, or most importantly, when her sister came to visit. Miriam had a similarly happy aftermath of the L-DOPA trials, with Sachs even claiming she probably did the best out of any of his patients. Although she suffered the occasional crisis or bout of anger, Miriam's life truly turned around in the wake of the drug. Formerly unhealthy, withdrawn, and full of inexpressible rage, Miriam became a true member of the Beth Abraham community. She didn't mind the one small tick that stayed with her through the rest of her life. She would often reach up and touch her face in a deliberate way. Miriam viewed it as a conduit to release the pent-up Parkinsonian energy still inside her. Summing up his decade of work at Beth Abraham, Sachs wrote that patients became astute and expert navigators of their brain weather. In general, post-encephalitic patients seem to be far wilier and cannier in this regard. They have usually had decades of experience in the stormy seas of themselves, they have painfully acquired their wiles as unsung post-encephalitic Odysseuses. And that image of open air and freedom is far more beautiful than any pent-up volcano. Although L-DOPA was not a miracle, it still led to a breakthrough in understanding the human condition in the wake of mysteries like the EL epidemic.
Although all of Sachs' profiled patients had died by 1984, he estimated that over 50 survivors of the epidemic remained at Beth Abraham until the 1990s, surely some of the final witnesses of this historical anomaly. Although justice is impossible in the brutal world of disease, Sachs and his incredible patients left a testament to the rest of us that sometimes what is needed most for those doing battle with their own bodies and minds is an expansion of empathy and a new metaphor, not below ground, but in the bright, shining light of day. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on encephalitis lethargica, amongst the varied sources we used, we found Oliver Sacks' Awakenings and Joel Valensky's Encephalitis Lethargica during and after the epidemic extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.